Why should we gain from his reward? We cannot give an answer. But this we know with all our hearts. His wounds have paid our ransom. Lord, those of us who know you as our Lord and Savior can never, ever get over the miracle of that truth. That your wounds paid our ransom, that you willingly went to the cross, that you're there for us, that you're for us, that you love us. And nothing can change that. Grant us wisdom now, we pray, as we look at this story of emptiness and bitterness and hard times and inexplicable suffering. Grant us wisdom to see that in the light of your cross. For we ask it in your name. Amen. Please do take your seats and turn back to Ruth chapter 1. As Steve mentioned, we're going to be, God willing, doing a short series in it uh, for four weeks with me, with two friends, Paddy and Ben Daniel. So we'll be sharing it between us and we'll do a chapter a week. And so uh, Ruth chapter 1, I'll just get my little timer out here. What should we do when life feels empty and bitter? What should we do? Walter Stace was a British philosopher in America at Princeton University. In 1948, he wrote an, a very interesting article. He was wrestling with what it meant in the modern world to abandon all belief in God. And he said that the chaotic state of the modern world was largely due to the loss of faith. He said this is what happens when God is abandoned. Since the world is not ruled by any spiritual being, but rather by blind forces, there cannot be any ideals, moral or otherwise, anything in, in the universe outside of us. Our ideals must proceed from our, only from our own mind. They are our own inventions. Thus the world which surrounds us is nothing but an immense spiritual emptiness. It is a dead universe. We do not live in a universe which is on the side of our values. It is completely indifferent to them. And he continued, if the scheme of things is purposeless and meaningless, then the life of man is purposeless and meaningless too. Everything is futile. All effort is in the end worthless. Our life is hollow at the center. Hence the dissatisfied, disillusioned, restless spirit of modern people. What are we to do when life feels empty? And you might be sitting there and thinking, well, that's not me. I'm not, I'm not, I haven't abandoned belief in God. I, I'm a a card-carrying Bible believer. But that doesn't mean that you're exempt from the emptiness and bitterness of life. In fact, perhaps it will come to all of us someday or other. And so we will need to face this question of what to do when life is empty. Because when we feel that there's an empty space in our lives, it cannot remain. It cannot remain. We always have to fill it. If we look at the really big questions in our life, our origin, where do we come from, our identity, who are we, our purpose, why are we here, our future. And if we find there's an empty space in any of those things, we cannot bear it and we try to fill it 
Because if we can't fill the void and put something in there, then all that remains is suicide, which is on the rise. We're trying to fill the void, all of us. There's an aching sense of emptiness. We want it to be filled. What do we do when life feels empty? Now, as you know, we're starting this series in the book of Ruth, which is a fantastic story, and it's a love story of sorts. And who doesn't like a good love story? And let me tell you now, spoiler alert, it has a happy ending. But like all great stories, this one starts with a lack. There's a lack. You know how these kind of stories work, don't you? A lonely king sets out to look for a wife, and the tale ends with a wedding. A village is oppressed by bandits. They search for a warrior who can save them, and he does. A poor boy and his mom are starving. He buys some magic beans at the market. You know what happens next. Now, the book of Ruth is, in, in, a, in a sense, one such tale. It has some folktale kind of qualities. It's written so that we can enjoy a good story, and it's written so that we can identify with the characters. C.S. Lewis once said, apparently, we read to know that we are not alone. We read to know that we are not alone. In other words, we read to find companions in life. But Ruth is more than just a folktale. It is actually true, it is historical, because the writer is careful to note at the beginning and at the end that this, this story is set in history. Have a look there in Ruth chapter 1, if you've got your Bible, page 267, if you've closed it. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. This is historical, this story. It's a fa one family story in the midst of a context. And if you turn over to the end of the book, chapter 4, verse 18, you have a family tree, the family line of Perez, a 10-member genealogy, and that ends with verse 22. So the last word in Ruth is what? David. Thank you. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. So it's, it's, it's located in history. The time of the judges, which was like the Wild West, a terrible time. Some of the grimmest times in the Bible. But it ends with this family being stitched into the genealogy of David, who is the great king, the one after God's own heart. Um, and that means, O oh Christians, that this is stitched into the greatest piece of history in the world, the family tree of Jesus Christ, the Savior. That's how the story is ultimately going to end. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Before we can fully enjoy the happy ending, we need to taste the tragedy. So this evening, I want to spend most of our time looking at Naomi's experience of emptiness and bitterness to help us think about that question for ourselves. What are we to do when life feels empty and bitter? And chapter one unfolds in three stages, and I think each one reveals something about emptiness. So my three points tonight are emptiness experienced, expressed, but expectant. Experienced, expressed, but expectant. Three points. Let's start. Emptiness experienced, verse one to six. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Now, the judges, we, we did a, Matt led us through a series on the judges earlier this year. And if you've been to any of those, you will know that that was a very rocky period in Israel's history. They had entered the land, which God had promised them, but they hadn't entered in a, a fully obedient, God-honoring, worshiping way. They'd compromised with the people around. And again and again, there was this cycle of, um, 
rebellion and God judging them and then they were invaded and then there was a rescuer and then there was repeat. So that's the, the, the context of this. And Judges has a kind of spiraling effect where it gets worse and worse and worse. And if you've got your Bible open, you will see at the end of the previous book, Judges, the end of Judges has this epitaph. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. And if you read the chapter or two before then, you'll know just how bad that can become. Everyone doing as they saw fit. This isn't Woodstock or Glastonbury. This is a horrible time in history. It's like a, a ethnic cleansing in Rwanda or something like that. It's, it's a, a shocking time. So, they have the, so there's that context historically, but there's also famine now. And if you if you've, uh, remember those of you around in the 80s, the pictures that we saw of famine in Ethiopia, which eventually led to, to live aid, Famine is a dreadful thing, and it afflicted people in those times. And there's a family from Bethlehem, which is an ironic name, because Bethlehem means house of bread, and there ain't no bread. And they go to live for a while in Moab. Now, this is desperate. Moab is not a place most Israelites wanted to go, not for a weekend break, not on holiday, certainly not to live. The Moabites were sworn enemies. Their culture and their values and their religion was utterly opposed to Israel. It's a move of desperation, and we get the names of the family. Elimelech, which means, I think I'm right in saying, God is my king, Naomi's husband, and two boys, Marlon and Kilion. And so they go. So we, we've got this family uh, story beginning, but then immediately almost death strikes. Verse 3, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. So all is not lost, although it's precarious now because dad's dead. But Naomi still has these two sons, and they're able to marry. They marry local women, Moabites, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. These would be women who didn't know the religion and the faith of the Israelites. But then tragedy strikes again. Another 10 years go by. Both the sons die in verse 5. And Naomi, it says, to underline it, was left without her two sons and her husband. Now, we don't know why they died. Uh, life was very hard in the second millennium BC. Verse 5 is about as understated as you can get for a, for a piece of absolute tragedy, isn't it? She was left without her two sons and her husband. Now, the reason why this is so tragic is that it was a man's world. Here are the problems that Naomi now faces. Pain and grief at the loss of loved ones. We knew that. Compounded with emptiness because she has lost her identity in that culture. Because the only things in that man's world which gave Naomi value were her role of wife and her role of mother. And she's lost them both. She's lost her security, her wealth, her position. She's lost her definition of value. And she's lost the future blessings of old age which women in that culture look forward to a time with their brood around them and their grandchildren. And it, ten years, it's all been snatched away. What do we do when life really feels empty? Now, notice two things that Naomi doesn't do here, and neither does the author. Firstly, she doesn't blame herself. She doesn't blame herself. She doesn't blame her own guilt or her own sin or try and figure out there's something I must have done that was wrong. My, uh, there's a famous story from my parents' 
my grandparents, one of my grandfather died, and at the funeral, one of my grandmother's sisters said to her, they were Irish, well, Lily, you have been wearing a lot of green lately, because he died so young. Like you brought some bad luck on there. It, it wasn't a good moment. Didn't speak for a while. Naomi doesn't find something to blame, neither does the author. And there's no hint, actually, in our text that the famine or the house move or the marriages to Moabite women are being punished by God. It just doesn't say that. And to think that, you would have to read it in. And plenty of later readers have done so. But this author leaves all those kind of questions in the background because in life, most of the time, the reasons why suffering and pain strike us are not clear. They're just not at all clear. There's a mystery about it. Why do things happen? Why does tragedy strike? Why is there suffering? Most of the time, the, the Bible doesn't, know, doesn't tell us and we don't know. Now, there are times in the Bible where a specific piece of suffering is connected to a specific sin. There are times, but not always and not even normally. Most of the time, suffering and pain happen, and we don't really know why. And we've all got to avoid being like Job's counselors. Job's counselors spend chapter after chapter after chapter trying to figure out where Job put a foot wrong. He didn't. The point is, it's a mystery. Now, the second thing that Naomi doesn't do is ask why in any way that demands an answer. Which, if we're honest, is perhaps what we might do. Now, I'm not saying that we should never ask why. And I'm certainly not saying that you should button it up if you're struggling with emptiness and bitterness. That you sh- I'm certainly not saying that you should just accept the suffering and never complain. This passage is going to show us how to complain. But Naomi doesn't insist or demand an accounting from God. She doesn't say, God, I demand that you give me the reasons why you've permitted this suffering in my life. You owe me. She's willing to let those questions go unanswered. But she also doesn't tie her own suffering to guilt. I wonder what we are inclined to feel and do when life goes wrong. I wonder what... how we're inclined to process it with our Lord. This is emptiness experienced, isn't it? But secondly, it is, and this is the key thing, it is expressed. It is expressed. The middle section from verse 7 to 19 is the longest section. And it takes place on the road um, from Moab back to Bethlehem. But this is not a travel story. It's the setting for a conversation. And the intense Emotional experience of Naomi is put right before us. Remember, this is a woman who has lost everything in her life that provided her with security, and she doesn't know why, and so she expresses it. And it is raw, it's unedited, it's powerful, there is anguish here, and this too belongs in our Bible. Because we need to know how to deal with loss and emptiness when they afflict us. So we're going to follow this painful dialogue. And it's all about who's going to return to where, who's coming back to Judah, and who's staying in Moab. Verses 8 to 11. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. 
May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. And then she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Naomi here is doing the right thing. She tells them to go back. She says, may God show you kindness as you've shown kindness. She's doing the right thing at great personal cost. This is heartbreaking for her. These two young women are the only family she has left. But she wants the best for them. And in that culture, the best thing, humanly speaking, is to go back to your family, find another husband, and settle down. And so she tells them to go. And as she does, she prays for them. May the Lord show you kindness. May the Lord grant this. This is the language of prayer. In spite of what's happened, she still has faith. She still wants the best for them and prays God's blessing on them. But the emotion starts to break through. They kiss her and everybody weeps aloud. It's too much for them to bear. And they protest. No, we'll come with you. We'll come back to your strange homeland but Naomi pushes back and she pushes back and says literally do I still have sons in my inner parts it's translated in our bible am I going to have any more sons who become your husband now remember it was a man's world what she's saying is I've got nothing to give you there's nothing for you here there's no security there's no home go back And then in verses 12 and 13, she pushes this line further. She says, um, return on my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. What's going on here? This is kind of strange, isn't it? The idea of having other sons and then waiting for them to grow up. The background to this is a cultural practice called leveret marriage. Leveret, L-E-V-I-R-A-T-E. It's not to be confused with Levites. And leveret marriage still exists in some parts of the world today. And it is a, a law or a rule, a principle, that the brother of a deceased man is obliged to marry his brother's widow. And this was the idea was to serve as protection for the widow so she wouldn't be left uh, alone in the world and the protection for his, the, the dead man's children. So that's lever at marriage. So it was an obligation, but there are no brothers left here. They both died. And so Naomi's saying, look, this, this, this boat has sailed. This door is closed. And we can sense and feel this hopelessness here. And it's even more intense in the end of verse 13. She says, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Now that is a complaint. That is a complaint. She clearly says that the cause of her calamity is none other than the Lord. And when you see in these Bibles that the Lord in capital letters, small caps, it is for the Hebrew word Yahweh, the special name of God that he gave to Moses at the burning bush. Yahweh's hand has turned against me, and I don't know why. That is the anguish cry of a person who is overwhelmed. 
Life looks like it's over. She must return home alone. She will not drag Orpah and Ruth along into her hopelessness. And in verses 20 to 21, down at the end of the chapter, the complaint is filled out in more detail. Have a look there. Don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant, she told them. Call me Mara, which means bitter, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. What are we to do when life is empty and bitter? Three things we learn from Naomi. Firstly, acknowledge the pain. Accept the pain. She brings it honestly out into the open. She doesn't pretend. She doesn't put on a fake Christian smile. It's, it's awful. It just is. Stoicism is the belief that you grin and bear it, stiff up a lip, chin up, press on, never explain, never complain. Christianity is not stoicism. The Bible is utterly realistic about life in a fallen world. The Bible explains that life is broken and tells us why. It says that life is hurting, it's painful, and it's really confusing. Troubles really are troubles. They are not illusions. So she brings it out. She lets it all out and, it, and says and tells it as it is in the presence of loved ones. And she brings it into the presence of God. She complains. First thing we learn, acknowledge the pain. Secondly, make your complaint. Make your complaint. It's a legitimate and proper thing to do in the Bible. Bring your complaint against God, sorry, before God, just as Job did, just as Jeremiah will, just as the psalmists do. Make your case, Lord, this is happening, I don't know why. And the author takes her complaint seriously. She doesn't get slapped down, she doesn't get corrected, she doesn't get silenced. It is not a sin to struggle with God's faithfulness. It may be inevitable that we do, and it may be the way we will grow as believers is to struggle with God's faithfulness at some point. This complaint is not only tolerated, it is actually the proper stance in certain circumstances. We have 150 Psalms in our Bible. Our hymn book in the Bible is the Psalms. Half of them are laments. And the lament is when life sucks. Half of the Psalms. It's not all way, joy, praise, praise, praise. It is that too, but half of the Psalms are laments. Have you learned how to do this, friends? Does your understanding of, of, of the gospel and Christianity allow you to bring your suffering before God and make a complaint appropriately? She accepts, acknowledges the pain. She makes the complaint, but she keeps walking with the Lord in the pain. So the third thing we notice from Naomi is, is that you must continue to obey God. She continues to show love to other people. She continues to sacrificially love Ruth and Orpah and think about their needs. Her attitude to, towards Orpah and Ruth is simply heroic. It's sacrificial and loving loyalty. 
And she doesn't give up on God. For who else do we have? And where else can we turn when life is empty and bitter? Nicholas Walterstorff is a philosopher and a professor at Yale University. He's also a Bible-believing Christian. He lost his son, his dear son, Eric, at the age of 24. And Walterstorff, who's written many books, wrote his most personal book, Lament for a Son. And of course, one would never really get over losing a, a child. Why don't you just scrap this God business, says one of my bitter, suffering friends. It's a rotten world. You and I have been shafted, and that's that. And Nick ponders, I'm pinned down. When I survey this gigantic, intricate world, I can't believe that it just came about. I do not mean that I have some good arguments for it being made and that I believe in the arguments. I mean that this conviction wells up irresistibly within me when I contemplate the world. And when I read the New Testament and I look into the material surrounding it, I'm convinced that the man, Jesus of Nazareth, was raised from the dead. He was the Son of God. And then Walter Storff says this, Faith is a footbridge that you don't know will hold you up over the chasm until you're forced to walk out onto it. Faith is a footbridge. You don't know if it'll hold you up over the chasm until you're forced to walk out on it. And that is the position that we find Naomi in as the chapter draws to a close. She is, feels bereft. She feels lost. She feels utterly alone. She's so lost in grief, she isn't really seeing straight. And, and we can be like that too. But this story isn't over because God has already begun to answer. Did you spot that when Steve was reading? God has already begun to answer because emptiness, as well as being experienced and expressed, should be expectant. Look at verse 19. Uh, excuse me, verse 16. Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May Yahweh deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. And when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. What are we to do when life feels empty? God begins to answer, even though Naomi's too brokenhearted to see it, because Ruth speaks. And this is one of the most inspirational moments in the entire Bible. Ruth stands alone, says one scholar. She possesses nothing. No God has called her. No deity has promised her blessing. No human being has come to her aid. She lives and chooses without a support group. She knows that the fruit of her decision may well be the emptiness of rejection. Not even Abraham's leap of faith surpasses this decision of Ruth's. And there is more. Not only is Ruth broken with family, country, and faith, she's also reversed allegiance. A young woman has committed herself to the life of an older woman rather than the search for a husband. One female has chosen another female in a world where life depends upon men. There's no more radical decision in all the memories of Israel. God's begun to answer. 
But there, there is no more radical decision in all the memories of Israel, but there is a more radical decision in the New Testament, isn't there? There is another one who chose the emptiness of rejection, indeed of death. Another one who stepped out into the void. Another one who left the place of security and of safety and of comfort and of wealth. Another one who came into poverty and experienced the suffering of loneliness and rejection for his people. There is one more who chose to suffer and chose humility and abjection, who chose the cross to lose, to be broken, so that we won't ultimately have to. That's why when you feel empty, you should be reaching out to feel expectant because you don't know what God will do through it. You just don't know, friends. But you do know Jesus Christ. And that means the story isn't over. Hope is coming. And these people, they came from Bethlehem. They were of the tribe of Judah. And so attentive readers have already got a clue about what's going to happen next. They know who came from there. The most famous Ephrathite from Bethlehem was King David, the great king who enjoyed God's favor. But we know even more than that, don't we? There is one greater to come who too was born in Bethlehem and would be a great king, our Lord Jesus Christ. What are we to do when life feels empty and bitter? Acknowledge the pain. Make your complaint. Continue in obedience to God. Wait expectantly and look to Jesus. Let's do that now.